Awesome. Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 15 there in the New Testament. Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, let me just remind you that out in the lobby on any Sunday, we've got those available. We'd love to give you one if you don't have one, and you can begin to read through it and begin to use it for yourself. But Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. So I remember as a kid, I remember I have this distinct memory of um, uh, being with my dad and my uncle on a little trip. Uh, a little excursion to a place called Kmart, right? Moment of silence, and uh, we all remember Kmart. Well, my uncle, his name was Phil, and I used to love it whenever he and my aunt would come down to visit us. They lived in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and they would come down and visit. We'd always go up there every summer as well. And whenever they would come to town, it was always a big day, right? We just always, because he was just so much fun, just enjoyable. We always had a great time together. And so this particular night, my dad and I, along with my uncle, Phil, we went to Kmart. Now, if you're not from Savannah, uh, if you're not, you haven't lived here for very long, then you, you may not know that where the Home Depot is now on Victory, uh, that's where Kmart was. That's where it used to be located. And so I went there with my dad, my uncle, and uh, we were just cutting up because that's the way my uncle was. And I was, uh, you know, hiding. I was probably six or seven, maybe eight years old or so. And I was hiding in the clothes rack. You know, they had those circular racks where they would hang the clothes, and sometimes they were the rectangle racks. And I was hanging up, or I was not hanging, <laughs> that would be like, you know, not hanging like a shirt. I was actually hiding up underneath there and just messing around until the point to where I came out, and I looked around, and I didn't see my dad, and I didn't see my uncle. And there was just panic. You remember that feeling maybe when you were a kid and you would do that kind of thing and you'd look around and realize, okay, none of this looks familiar suddenly anymore. I have no idea how to get home. And the people I came here with, I don't even think they're looking for me at this very moment. And it was a really, really scary, scary place to be. And it ended well. I, I, um, I made it home three days later and now just... Now, of course, you know, we found each other. I'm sure, I don't remember, I probably had to go to the customer service. Remember those days? And, you know, will the parents of Brooks Kale please come to customer service? There's that whole embarrassing thing. But it ended up finding me and made it home. But I still remember that. I remember that experience and what it's like, just that sheer panic of realizing that I'm in a place that, that I don't want to be anymore, and, and the people that I'm looking for I can't find, and I don't even know if anybody is even looking for me at all. You know, that doesn't go away when we're kids. We find ourselves often getting lost in other ways as well, the older that we get. And maybe for you, that same feeling of being a kid and being in an unfamiliar place and realizing the people you came with aren't there and nobody's even looking for you, that feeling may be a feeling that you've experienced even as an adult. In fact, maybe even right now, that's been a feeling that you've been grappling with over these past few days or the past few uh, weeks or maybe even the past few months, maybe for a long time. Just that sense that, you know what, I've got everything, I've, I've got the bank account, I've got the house, I've got the family, I've got the dog, I've got the, you know, everything that I could have wanted, and yet still on the inside there's this feeling that something is just not quite right. Something is unsettled, something is missing, you've tried to figure out what that is, you haven't been able to figure out that, what that is exactly, but there's just the sense that there is something that's misaligned, there's something that's out of place. You just kind of feel sort of lost, and it's not a good feeling. Or maybe you find yourself sort of at the other extreme. It's not that you have everything. Maybe you're at a place where, where it, you wish things were different, right? Maybe it's a place where you find yourself at a, at a place in your life where you, don't, you just don't want to be there anymore. If you could change things, you could. And maybe it's the fact that you feel like you're so far kind of wandered from where you used to be in life. Maybe you look back to your sort of past self and think, you know what? Things were better when I was at that place in my life. And I don't know where, I don't know how, but I've just kind of wandered from that. 
Maybe you feel like you're at a place where the values that you were raised with or the way you were raised, it's just sort of a different day. And now you found yourself in a in a different location, just kind of kind of lost in your life. Maybe even as it relates to God, you find yourself at that place where it seems as though he's just a million miles away. And you're, you're honestly, you wouldn't verbalize this, but you're kind of grappling with the idea that, you know, I don't even know if God knows where I am right now, and, and I don't know if he's even looking for me. And it's just sort of that, that same sense, that overwhelming sense of just kind of panic, the sense that something's not quite right. You know, what's interesting is, is that Jesus went there, and he talked about that experience in life, and he does it in Luke chapter 15. Now, Jesus would tell what we call parables. Uh, I think a little easier to understand maybe would just be the word story, that, that we understand the Bible, we, we take it literally, and it's a historical document, right? We can live by it, bank on it, bank our eternity on it. But there were instances where Jesus would tell a story, a parable of something that had not really happened in history, but he was telling it to prove a point, to make a point, rather. And all, all, always when we read these stories and we read these parables in the Bible, in the New Testament, that Jesus would tell, they would always tell us something about God, and they would always tell us something about ourselves. And in Luke 15, he breaks off into three different stories, three different parables, and they're all about something that's lost. The first one we're not going to deal with uh, is is the the story or the parable of the lost sheep. Now, this was a little hard for me to to follow because I've never owned a sheep. I don't know how to take care of a sheep. If you gave me a sheep, I I don't know how much they eat or what they eat or how often they need to eat or any of those kind of things. So it's a little harder for me to relate to this one specifically, maybe for you too. I don't know. Maybe you have some sheep at home that nobody knows about. But Jesus tells this story about a fella who had 100 sheep. 99 of them were safe and sound, but there was one that had wandered away and was lost. And what he tells in the story, he says that the man who owned these sheep, he leaves the 99 safe and sound, and he goes in search of the one that had wandered. And when he found it, he takes the sheep, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he begins to tell all of his friends and all of his neighbors that they needed to celebrate. Because what was lost has now been found. What was wandered away has now come home. And then he rolls into the second parable, the second story, and Jesus tells this story not of a lost sheep, but he tells it of a lost coin. And in this story, he tells about a woman who had 10 silver coins, coins of great value. And she realizes as she counts them in her pocket, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that there's one of them that's missing. And so she does like you do when you've got Easter guests coming for the weekend. She flips the house upside down. She's turning everything over, and she's just searching everywhere, looking at everything, trying to find this one missing coin. Now, this one I can relate to a little bit. Not because of a lost coin, but I remember a few years ago, probably, I don't know, a dozen years ago, Hannah was little. I don't remember. I think Drew was, like, super little then. April wasn't even born yet. And we were with some friends at Lake Sinclair. We were swimming, and, uh, and, and I took my wedding ring off because I usually do that when I get in the water. And, uh, and so I, I handed it from the water up to the dock to Hannah, who was probably about five at the time. And everything in my mind said, don't do it, do it, don't do it, don't do it, Brooks, don't do it, don't do it, Brooks, 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 Brooks. And I handed it to her. I said, be careful that you don't bloop. <laughs> and I, I literally, I saw it go whoop, 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 down to the bottom. And for the next couple of hours or so, me and some others, we, we would just like take a deep breath and go down about five feet of water. And we would grab up little scoops of dirt and you'd see glittery stuff and you'd think, that's it. And it wasn't. Until not long before we left, I, I, I scooped it up and I saw this little glittery stuff and I, and I put my finger through it and it's like, it's it! And then I adjusted all this water. <laughs> not really. And so I came up and I was just celebrating. And that's exactly what this, what, what this person did. This woman with the 10 coins, she found the lost coin and she began to call her friends and call her neighbors and they said, we got to celebrate. 
because what was lost is now found. Now, Jesus would tie these things together. If you look in Luke 15 and verse 7, for example, look at what he says. Remember, he's making a point. Look at what he says in verse 7 in Luke 15. This is after the shepherd found the lost sheep. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You go down to verse 10. This is after the story about the lost coin. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Remember, he's always telling us in these parables a little something about who God is, and he's telling us a little something about who we are. And so on that, he rolls into the third story in Luke 15, the most famous story of the three, maybe the most famous story of all time, potentially. Not just of the parables Jesus told, maybe the most famous short story that's ever been told. And he tells us something about who God is, and he tells us something about who we are, and it's going to be known as the parable or the story of the lost son, or maybe, as you know it, the prodigal son. And so let's go ahead and jump in here. Luke chapter 15, we're going to begin in verse 11. Let's just move through this story. I'm not going to cover every part of it, but I'm going to cover the bulk of it, and then the rest of it I'm going to cover next Sunday. So we'd love for you to come back, finish this thing out. You can't leave it hanging for a whole week, right? So you've got to come back next week, and we'll finish it out. So Luke chapter 15, let's start in verse 11. So Jesus begins the story. It says, and he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. All right, so there are three players in the story at this point. There's a father, and then there are two sons. There's a younger son and an older son. And, and as Jesus begins to tell this story, he, he's setting the, the, the scene really, really well for us. And the scene is, is that this younger son finally comes to a place in his life where I'm sure he had already uh, more than likely uh, treated his, his father with disrespect on many occasions, but this was the ultimate. He comes to his dad, and what normally would take place after dad had passed away and was no longer there, he, he just goes ahead and fast tracks this, and he comes to the father, and he says, Dad, I want you to give me, in fact, he makes a demand, doesn't even ask a question, give me my share of your estate. Now, this was a slap in the face. I mean, he, he was essentially saying to his dad, you know what, dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to pass away, and I'm tired of waiting for what's rightly mine, and so if you would, and since you're not going to speed this up, I'm going to speed it up myself. Could you just go ahead and give me what's rightfully mine? And according to Hebrew law, what was required was if the father gives to one, then he has to give to all of his children. And so it says at the end of verse 12 there that the father generously divided his wealth. He had two kids here in this story, a younger and, a, and, and an older son. He generously divided his wealth between them. And now this young son has his pockets full with what he has been waiting on. Now remember it, it, what I said earlier, that, that, that Jesus, as he tells, tells these stories, he tells them for a reason. Well, there's a certain crowd there today as he's telling this story. There's a certain crowd, and Luke actually tells us who they are. Look back in Luke 15, verse 1 through 3. It says in verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. So they're listening to Jesus tell this story about a younger son, an older son, and a father are two groups of people. On the one group, you've got those that Luke describes as tax collectors and sinners. 
okay? I mean, it is April 9th, right? Your taxes are due soon. You can kind of relate to the feeling of tax collectors. Probably it's not what you're feeling. Back in the first century, tax collectors were absolutely despised by the Jews because they were considered sellouts. They worked for the Roman government, and they gouged their own people. And so what Luke does is he kind of puts them into one category, tax collectors and sinners. Let's just say these are the people that were far from God. God wasn't even on the radar. They're living life on their own terms. They kind of set in their own rules. This is the first group. The other group that's listening to Jesus on this particular day are going to be those that are called the Pharisees and the scribes. We're going to unpack them next Sunday. But let's just call them the religious people. All right? They were the religious leaders of the day. You've got the sinners and the tax collectors far from God. God's not even on the radar over here. Then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. Listen, they had a certain uh, 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 tone of religion to their lives, but they were equally far from God as well. Jesus is speaking to both. And so we find here that he, he begins the story by equating a younger son and an older son with a father. The younger son in his story is going to represent the sinners and the tax collectors far from God, living life in the fast lane on their own terms. The older son in his story we're going to deal with next Sunday are the Pharisees and the scribes, equally estranged from the father, but they have a religion in their life. And the father in the whole story represents God. All right, so Jesus sets the, sets the stage. Let's look down in verse 13, next verse. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Later in the parable, there is more detail given as exactly how he spent his money. Let's just say for the moment that it was not in a good way. He blew the money that was his. He had this money burning a hole in his pocket. And, uh, and, and Jesus, as he tells the story, you'll notice there, he says, not many days later. I mean, if they had signed a contract between dad and the two sons that said, this is, this is now yours, this is now yours, sign here. I mean, the ink was not even drawn the contract hardly. Whenever this younger son said, you know what? I got my pockets full. I got plans. I'm going to go to this city and that town and this city and that town. And I'm going to call up this buddy and that person and that person and that person. Man, we're going to live it up. And it hardly any time had passed. He takes everything that he has with his pockets bulging with all this now newly found income, this wealth that he has, and he hits the road. I mean, he takes off, and he begins to hightail it, not just away from home, not just from every way that he, everything that he had been raised in, but he, ta- he, he hightails it away from the Father specifically. And he goes out to a place that's described here as a distant Country, the King James Version of the Bible and the English Standard Version, the ESV, it calls it the far country, right? Maybe you lived life in the far country back when you were a kid. Maybe you remember a time when you were six, seven, eight years old, and uh, your mom told you to clean your room one too many times, right? And you're like, that's it. I'm out of here, and you got your stuffed animals, and you got your favorite Tonka truck, and you got your bag of Doritos, and you had it headed out that front door, and you were going to run away. You were headed down the street, three doors, to Timmy's house, right? And you went down the street, three doors. You were out in the far country, and you went down the road, and you went to Timmy's house, and uh, Timmy said, what are you doing here? And you're like, hey, I'm living life on my own now. And, and then the sun began to set, and Timmy's mom put dinner on the table, and you realized Timmy's mom couldn't cook, <laughs> and, <laughs> 
And you knew mom and dad, mom was making mac and cheese back home. And so you got your empty bag of Doritos and, uh, and then you got your Tonka truck and you got all your favorite toys and you hightailed it back, right? No, going, not in far country anymore, going back home. We've all kind of been there, but here's the thing. When we live with that mentality, and so many of us have done this, when we live in that mentality, not as kids anymore, but when we go off to the far country as adults, as grown-ups, listen, what we find is that far country is a lot darker. And that far country has a lot more harsh edges to it. And that far country is not nearly as forgiving as the far country when we were seven and eight years old looking for life on our own terms. That far country, as grown-ups, leaves wounds and scars. Deep wounds and scars. Some of those scars are physical. You may be able to look at your body and see physical remnants of life in the far country. And it reminds you of a day, either that you're glad is not a part of your life anymore, you praise God for the grace, or it reminds you of a life that you wish you could shake, even now. Some of those scars from the far country aren't on the outside, they're on the inside. They're relational scars, they're emotional scars, they're spiritual scars. And understand that life in the far country doesn't necessarily mean physically that we leave home. Sometimes we can be with our same family, in the same job, driving the same car, living in the same house, and yet on the inside we are so far from who God is and from where he wants us to be. Life in the far country. Verse 14, Jesus continues in the story. Now when he had spent everything... A severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. In other words, he found himself in the midst of circumstances that he could not control. A famine had come to the land. He had spent everything. His pockets were full. And by the way, the friends that were glad to celebrate with you in the far country when your pockets were full are usually non-existent when the pockets are empty. (laughs) And he was reminded of this in a really cold, harsh way. And he found himself at a place where he had never been before when he had lived in the father's house. Verse 15 and 16. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. He was feeding pigs. This is rock bottom for a Jew. He is feeding pigs. He has now found himself empty. He's found himself alone. He's found himself bankrupt. He's found himself broken. And, and one of the saddest parts about that verse, it says, and no one was giving anything to him. It's one thing to be lost. That's hard enough. It's a much worse thing to be lost and know that nobody's looking for you. And this is where he was. Jesus continues, look down in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, 
but I'm dying here with hunger. See, on the, on the inside, things are beginning to change now. Adversity has a way of getting your attention. I remember when I was a kid, I got a lot of kid stories this weekend for some reason. I remember when I was a kid, and uh, I didn't like to get up when the alarm went off for school. I, I had no problem getting up when the when the cartoons came on, somehow my body knew that on Saturdays, but for school I didn't like to get up. And my mom had this little trick. Um, she would get the wash rag with cold water in it. Not a washcloth, a wash rag, that's what she called it. And, and it would be this threat, don't make me get the wash rag, right? And you knew, okay, I'm up. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, mom. Don't, don't do this, right? Because cold water to a sleepy face has a way of shaking you back to reality really quickly. Adversity does the same thing. And this fellow now is coming to his senses. Adversity has been a teacher, a harsh teacher, yes, but a teacher no less. And it's now got his attention, and we find that he's ready to do business. Look at what it says in verse 18. He puts together a plan. It's a four-part plan. He says, I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He has four parts to this little speech that I'm sure he rehearsed all the way back to the father's house. He, he decided, I'm going to change my direction. Number two, I'm going to go to the father. Uh, uh, n- number three, I- I'm going to um, admit what I've done. I'm, g- I'm going to own it, tell him I've blown it. And, and I'm going to, number four, plead for mercy. And all the way to the father's house, you can imagine rehearsing this speech, what he's going to say. Father, <clears throat> no, no, no. Dad, uh, no, no. And he probably rehearsed it all the way, right? He's going to change his direction, go back to the Father, own what he's done, and plead for mercy. And it's interesting what happens when he puts this plan into action. Verse 20, and so he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Remember who the father represents in the story that Jesus is telling. Remember, it's God. And his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Four things that the father did. Number one, he saw him. Undoubtedly, the picture in Jesus' story is that this father never quit looking. Now, one difference between the father in this story and actually God our father, right, God the father, is that he always knows where we are. We're never out of his sight. But in this picture here, Jesus paints a picture uh, of a father who's always looking. He has compassion for those who have wandered. And and whenever he came close, the father runs to him. The only place in the Bible where we see any type of an image of God running is in this story. And he's running to to a wanderer who's come home. And then he embraces and kisses him. Life alone My problem's deep, so strong, the smell of sin. Yet looking at my wicked heart, the Lord still wanted in. He promised to remake me, to wash the sin away. He promised he could pay the debt that I could never repay. He opened up my blinded eyes, and his light now I see. When I cannot reach up to him, in love he reached to me. As I still stumble on life's way, tis joy to understand Victory was made mine that day, the day that my God ran. You know, if you're in the far country today, he knows where you are, and he calls you home. Verse 21, Jesus isn't done yet. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. He couldn't even get any further in the speech. 
But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. And so he comes home, and he goes into a speech, and the father who had sought him, or who had looked for him, and who had compassion for him, and never quit loving him, who ran to him and embraced him and kissed him, now puts a robe on his shoulders, he puts new clothing on him, he puts a ring on his hand, he puts new sandals like air prodigal ones, right? He puts new shoes on his feet, and everybody is rejoicing. I mean, everybody is just, just you know, having this big time celebration, except for two. One of those would have been the older son. We're going to see him again next week. He wasn't rejoicing, and we'll understand why next week. But, and then the fattened calf, obviously, he wasn't rejoicing a whole lot. You know, He's probably like, seriously? You could have come home when I was skinny? I mean, now it's all done for me. And so everybody else is rejoicing. Everybody else is having a good old time here because, and Jesus tells us why in verse 24, and it ties it all together, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found and they began to celebrate. He was dead spiritually, emotionally, uh, mentally, in every way he was dead except physically. But now at the end of the story, when he comes to the father on the father's terms, he's alive. He was lost, estranged from the Father, not just in distance, but relationally. And at the end of the story, when Jesus ties it together, he's no longer lost, he's found. He's back in right relationship with the Father again. Again, not on the Son's terms, but on the Father's terms. And everyone, for right, for right reasons, began to celebrate. Do you remember maybe when you, if you're a parent or grandparent, if you spend much time with kids, Maybe seeing a, a toddler at a mirror recognizing themselves for the first time. You, know, you see this little two-year-old or so, and they're standing in front of a mirror, and they don't know that that's them, and they just wonder, who's this other kid? You know, and, and, uh, and they begin to like, smile, and they realize, hey, wait, they smiled back at me. And then maybe they kind of give a little wave, and they say, wait, he waved back at me. And then they, they kind of, everything starts to piece together, and the light bulb goes off to the point to where they realize, hey, wait, that's me. <laughs> You know, sometimes when you read a story like this, Jesus was the best storyteller that ever told a story. You hear this story, and a light bulb goes off. And you think, wait a minute. That's me. I may be a million miles away. And Brooks, if you only knew my story, you know the miracle it is that I'm even sitting in a seat in this place today. Or you may live in the same house, you're going to clock in on the same job tomorrow, you're going to drive the same car, and you're going to kiss the same kids to bed tonight. But on the inside, you're the prodigal who's so far away from God. You know, there's a song that a lot of you here are probably familiar with, not because you've heard it in a church, I doubt you've ever heard it in a church. It's not a bad song. It's just not one that gets played in church. You've heard it a lot on the radio, I'm sure, through the years. But you know, it's interesting because when you take this song, that's not a Christian song, and you overlay this story along with a few other passages of Scripture from God's Word, I don't know of another song that could tell this story any better. And so let's just take a moment, turn your attention to the screen, and just listen to the words.
desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences For so long now Oh, you're a hard one But I know that you got your reasons These things that are pleasing you hurt you somehow Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, boy She'll beat you if she's able You know the queen of hearts is always your best bet Now it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table But you only want the ones that you can't get Desperado Oh, you ain't getting no younger Your pain and your hunger They're driving you home And freedom, oh, freedom Well, that's just some people talking Your prison is walking through this world all alone Don't your feet get cold in the wintertime The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine It's hard to tell the nighttime heads bowed and eyes closed with um, no one looking around, heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, the choir is going to make their way up here. Don't let that be a distraction. Let's just tie this together for a moment. You know, the story of the Bible can be summarized in just four simple components, four simple parts. The first part of that story is that God created you, and he created your life with value He created you in his own image, and he loves you deeply. For God so loved the world, that includes you, that he gave his only son, that you are a reflection of who God is and the fact that you bear his image. The second part of that grand story is that there's a a real problem. 
there's a dark spot on the story, and that dark spot is what we call the fall, it's sin. And every one of us, you and me included, have sinned. And what that sin has done is that it's broken our relationship with God. In the same way that the younger son took what was rightly his and hit the road and estranged himself from the father, it's our sin that breaks our relationship with God. And that's an, that, that's a, an issue that has eternal consequences. But the good news is, is that God took the first step, that he sent his son, Jesus, God himself, who came and he died on the cross to pay the perfect penalty for our sin. He paid it in full. He even said so. And he didn't stay in the grave. He rose three days later. It's what we celebrate today. This Savior is a Savior who lives. God himself extends that hand, that invitation to relationship. But we don't come to him on our terms. We come to him on his terms. That after our sin, he offers redemption, forgiveness. And if we come to him by turning from our sin and giving our lives to Christ, I remember as a little boy doing that and just simply inviting Jesus to forgive me and to take over my life. He restores us. He restores our lives. He gives us a relationship with himself. And in a way we can't comprehend, what awaits us after this life is far better than anything we could even imagine. But it doesn't happen by accident. In the same way that young son came to his senses and he got up and he went to the Father. In that same way, we also realize our sin and we come to Jesus, inviting him to forgive and to save. It's the biggest decision you'll ever make, the only decision you'll ever make that's going to last forever. And if you've never made that decision today, I invite you to do it. You can simply say a prayer like this, Lord Jesus... I know that I need you. I know that I've sinned and my relationship with God has been broken. I believe that you're God, that you died for me, that you rose again. And today, as an act of my will, the best that I can, I lay down my sin and I turn from it. And I invite you, Jesus, to forgive me, to take over my life, to save me, and to keep me from this day through eternity. Help me to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer today and you gave your life to Jesus, he makes some promises to you that you'll be able to unpack the rest of your life on this earth. But one of those is that he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. You're never going to be alone. In those moments that come in life, and it doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life from this day forward. You will when you get to heaven. But we still face adversity. We still face difficulties. But you're never going to walk alone. You're never going to be in a place where you're lost ever again. God, we thank you today for those that you, that you reached out to and that, that you've saved Lord, today. We thank you for those who've already had a relationship with you. God, they've already made this decision, decision, but they've, they've wandered. Lord, they've kind of headed off into the far country, and today you've called them back, back home again. God, we thank you for every decision made in this place this morning. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.
before you go today.